This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 31. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is session 31 of the Working Class Audio Podcast, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Hey, whether you're uh, in a classroom full of people getting ready to listen and take it all in, or maybe you're going out for a jog, or you're in the studio control room cleaning up and just going about your day, getting ready for a session, and you're I don't know. You're getting warmed up. You're getting ready for your day. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to me ramble here. If you've tuned in to number thir- session number 30 with uh, Bruce Cappen, you'll know that we have removed the freelance aspect of the podcast in an effort to expand our, our world, to expand our, our point of view so we can get more information from all sides of the equation in the recording world. So I hope that's okay with you. I hope you're not, uh, oh man, the podcast is changing and I loved it the way it was. I know. I hear you. There's, you know, you get you get hooked on something and you enjoy it and then it changes. And I get that. But you know what? Change is a part of life. So what can I say? We got to change. We got to we got to grow. So that's what we're doing here. We're growing. Speaking of growing or shrinking in this case, I'm I'm very excited. I uh, I've been selling some gear paying down some debt that I still carry from having a studio. So I'm very excited about that and kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel with regards to this debt. And I look forward to that day. I know many of you out there probably are carrying some debt yourself, maybe um, credit card debt from, you know, maybe buying a few too many plugins, buying a few too many pieces of outboard gear or that one microphone you thought, I got to get this for the session. You know, maybe the money you thought you'd make from the session and pay off the credit card and pay the mic off or pay the piece of gear off. Maybe that money ended up having to go pay rent or buy food or do something. I don't know. Maybe it had to go to something else. Well, it happens to the best of us. And uh, I'm just here to, you know, just say, no, I'm not, not here to be your mom or your dad, but I am here just to give you some words of encouragement. Uh, if you are in debt, whether it's from gear or not, Work on paying off that debt because, I mean, that is really, you know, if you can free your mind day to day when you do sessions and you do any kind of recording and you're not thinking about other factors, yeah, it's one less stress that you can control. I think that's that's an important thing. At least that's been an important thing for me. There's one blog in particular that I'm really fond of and I'm really, uh, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should get this guy in the show. Uh, there's a uh, website called Mr. Money Mustache. It's this guy who's all about just kind of, you know, really kind of being a badass with with your money and not really, uh, I'm not saying, you know, be a multimillionaire, but at least uh, get a get a strong grip on what's going on and, and make better decisions with regards to your money. All right. So that's my money, my money talk for you today. But the last parting thought I will say, and that is students. Just don't, or any of you for that matter, just don't go into credit card debt for for equipment. It's just not worth it. It'll come back and haunt you like you will not believe. Believe me, I speak from experience. I'm haunted to this day. All right, so on to our our guest. Today's guest on uh, WCA is Alan Farmello, producer, mixer, engineer, of course. Uh, Alan has worked with uh, the Cinematic Orchestra, Ian Gillen from 
Deep Purple, a Billionaire Show, a Sea of Bees, The Loom, uh, Downtown Harvest. And he's also a regular contributor to Tape Bot Magazine. He's also part of Pink Noise, which is uh, basically Pink Noise, according to their website, is dedicated to increasing the diversity of voices speaking about record making and to fostering an intellectual tradition to accompany the practice of record making. Could you tell that I was reading that? I was reading that right off the website. Anyways, um, Alan is a part of Pink Noise Mag. He's a very outspoken uh, guy when it comes to high-resolution audio. Alan and I definitely have many a discussion over Facebook and I see him in debates with those who aren't really into high res audio on Facebook. And it's, it's, he's a very passionate dude. And, you know, he, I think he comes from a good place and I'll just, you know, I'll say that while my personal verdict on the concept of high res audio is still a little bit on the fence, I think Alan makes good arguments for high res audio. And in general, He's just a guy that wants to make things in the world of recording better all the way around, whether it's, you know, men and women both contributing to audio and just uh, the audio quality being better. And he's just he's a good dude. He really is. So here he is on Working Class Audio right now. Hey, Alan. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being on here. Thank you. Now, you and your wife have kind of a, you guys have a very interesting, not only a very interesting working thing together, but she's got essentially a children's persona that she puts on, uh, like a, a an, an act that seems somewhat educational. For the record, we're not officially married, but we have rings and hang out all the time, so we go with that. Okay. <laughs> I call her my wife all the time now. It's just easier. Um, anyways, Shelly has a project called Elska, which we invented together. And Elska is a fictional character that Shelley plays, and she performs and records for children. And there's also storybooks emerging. We've got some stuffed animal-type things coming out, costumes, videos, and we're thinking about doing more film-type stuff, whether they'll be short format or longer format things. And Elska is the character... Um, a modern pioneer who discovers a newly formed volcanic island off the coast of Iceland. And she lives there with a cast of funny characters, um, a polar bear, an Arctic fox, her friend who's a small green thing called the Goobler, a 10,000-year-old musician who lives in a valley, uh, in a valley with 10,000 bells called Shushi. And Shelley and I created this project after... We, we were working on, it's so funny, when you do children's music, you end up referring to everything else as adult music, which sounds vaguely pornographic. <laughs> <laughs> we still don't know how to just differentiate that music that's not for children. That might sound worse. And we're working on a record together. She's an amazing songwriter and singer, but she had done these various um performances that she developed for children over the years. When she was living in L.A., she had a very successful uh, theater program called the Sunday Pickle Brunch. She'd just done all these different things, and she's not just a musician. She's an amazing visual artist. She was a political cartoonist for a while. She's a trained actress and has been in, you know, cutting-edge experimental theater in New York. She kind of had all these dimensions, and when you sit down and say, I'm going to be a singer-songwriter, 
it was narrowing a little bit what she was able to do. And the children's music allowed her to kind of create, act, perform, songwrite, do visual art, and all of these things in one. It just seemed like a fuller package for hmm. her. So it was interesting because th this was before we were a couple, and I kind of coached her into this, which is a, something I sometimes do as a producer. It's like I, I often feel like I end up doing life coaching. And to be really honest, I've started to charge people for Skype sessions in which we discuss what they should do with their careers, because I think that's missing from a lot of people, mm -hmm. teasing out of people what their real goals are, what their real desires are, and then plotting a course from there, which has very little to do with actually setting up a microphone and recording anything. Right. But I often think those things aren't sorted out these days because people can just jump in and make a record. You don't need a record deal. You don't need a million dollars. So a lot of the things that used to be further down the road for artists, i.e. making a record, um, happen right away, right at the front end before they've really sorted out a few things, you know. Hmm. So interestingly, uh, you know, Shelly and I had this conversation and it turned out to be a really good conversation because she has an incredible amount of energy for, for this because she gets to use all these different facets of her creativity. And then together we ended up, uh, becoming a couple, first time I've ever breached that boundary. Um, <laughs> it was very interesting. Happened very late in my career. Was calling family and friends for advice, like, "What do I do?" You know, like, Alan, you've worked with such amazing people over the years. How is this the first time? I said, "I don't know, but she's the one." And I was right. And we went to Iceland together, and we totally threw out everything we'd been working on. We'd been doing such predictable children's music um, and we threw the whole thing out and started from scratch with all new music uh, and with this concept in place Elska did the name Elska come out of your trip to Iceland yeah it's the Icelandic verb that means to love um, and it was on the headrest the paper thing on the headrest of the chairs and the airplane they had little Icelandic words and phrases that you could read mm -hmm. and Elska was one of them so we kind of grabbed it, and we played around with a lot of different names for a while. Um, but the word, as English speakers, that word is just so tangible and beautiful, and it really worked. And we've asked a lot of Icelandic people, does that work as a name? And the answer is, yeah, 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 it's great. It's okay. It's a little weird, but it's okay. <laughs> and I think it's because it's a verb. But ironically, my last name is a botched Italian spelling, which is actually a verb. So maybe I have an instinct for verbs as names. I'm not sure. You have an attraction to verbs. Yeah, definitely. I'm into the verbs. Your role in this is essentially, I mean, it's it's a co-creation of the two of you, or is it her her idea entirely? Or no, it's very much a co-creation. It's funny, you know. Thing. I mean, early on, Shelley drew this funny little character, and you know, a few weeks later, I just walked out of the studio and said, I think that guy's named the Googler. You know, it's, it's very sort of throwing things at the wall. But since it's evolved and developed, we're very much, I mean, we, co we have 50-50 co-writes on all the materials. We co-own the record label we started. It's right down the middle, right down to the paperwork. And yet we play different roles. I mean, I don't get on stage and perform, and she does. You know, I do a large amount of the producing of the tracks, but Shelley's become very adept at that. I don't think she'd ever programmed a MIDI instrument before, and now she's one of the most interesting programmers I know, especially for beats. Um, and her harmonic and melodic sense is so 
out there. It's very, she was obsessed with Stevie Wonder as a kid, and so she brings a lot of that complex harmonic and rhythmic stuff to this music, but it's in this electronic soundscape, so you almost don't notice that's where it's coming from. Um, so we, we've had an, it's very interesting to live with someone that you create with, you know, because it's constantly interlaced into your conversations. And sometimes we have to say, we're going to breakfast, but it's a, it's a real breakfast, not an Elska breakfast. We can't talk about the project or the work. <laughs> so it's like, you know, having to set boundaries together around the work. Okay. So well, that, that brings up an interesting question. When you're yeah. in a relationship with somebody that you are so artistically intertwined with, does that kind of, do you, do you literally, I mean, you, you laugh, but I mean, do you really sometimes have to say, let's not talk about work. Let's talk about other yeah. stuff. Let's talk yeah, about. Because one of us might need to chill out and the other one, might, you know, like I'll give you an example. Shelly might be sitting in the garden weeding and listening to some music. Right. And I'll come out and go, you know, I just got an email from the lawyer about the thing. Or <laughs> she's like, damn it. I was just hitting that Zen gardening moment, you know, or she'll come in when I'm mixing a band and, you know, say, I had an idea for the blah, blah, blah. And then my, that starts that gear turning. And I didn't need that gear turning at that moment. So we have had to sort out because we have constant access to each other. We've had to sort out some boundaries between work and not work um, it, to the point where we've started to schedule meetings which is good. That's turned out to be a really healthy choice. Like, okay, on you know Friday at four o'clock, we're going to sit down and we're going to hammer through these topics. So it's it's becoming interestingly more business like the, the the further we go, but almost by necessity, so that we can get our lives back in balance a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I I don't know what percentage of you know producer engineer recording people out there are in a similar situation where they really have to separate that work from the personal and how complicated that can be. I mean, I know examples. I mean, Tucker Martin and his wife, Laura, and I mean, there are quite, there are a number of them out there, couples, you know, who mm -hmm. seem to work together. And it's always interesting to me when they decide they can't anymore or that they need to work with different people. Shelly and I haven't hit that point, but I, I always wonder how that happens, you know, and yeah. why that choice comes up. But it is it is unique. Um, I think for me, it's <laughs> interestingly very much an extension of my whole life, which was being in bands with and living with people. You know, early on, I, I didn't go to college till I was much older, and right out of high school, I moved in with bandmates. And you know, so it's basically you get raised, and then you move in with a bunch of people you're creative with. And here I am living with someone I'm creative with. I just, it almost feels like just totally natural to me. You have, you have four older brothers? <laughs> two brothers and two sisters. Two brothers and two sisters. Okay. Were they creative? Yeah. A very musical family, but I'll tell you what I got from my father is this auto audiophile type attitude. <laughs> it's like, you know, I was raised in the seventies and, and he finally had enough money to indulge in nice things. And that meant stereos, you know? And yeah. it was like, He's bringing home the magna planers and plugging them in and, and making you sit down and appreciate the imaging. And, you know, I'm like five and he's playing me, you know, dark side of the moon and saying, like, do you hear how the symbol is like it's in the room? And I'm like, you know, if you sat in the right spot in our living room, that was very true, you know, and, and there was a lot of appreciation for for sound and my brothers were almost competitive with it. You know, Lynn turntables and friends turntables, all about turntables and amps and speakers and 
God, my one brother still has all that stuff. And now it's, we all covet it, you know, and, you know, in my sister's record collection, get your hands off my records, which made them that much cooler. And I talk about listening culture a lot when I talk about what we do, because I think that we are constantly in conversation with the listening culture. It's like, what is the culture of listening in any place at any time? And I think the listening culture of my childhood, the 70s and into the 80s, it, it, it was at an amazing point. We were all analog. We were perfecting analog. We were getting the noise floor down. We were getting the stereo imaging amazing. We, you know, the studios were just, we're still trying to emulate what was done in 1978 or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And talking about that era and before. But if you look at the listening culture back then, we didn't have a million distractions in our culture And you would do something like on a Sunday, sit down with your father and listen to a whole record or 10, you know, Mm -hmm. especially in cold Buffalo winter. Like, I want to go outside. Let's go listen to a record. Television watching was minimal. We had, what, three channels and they turned off at night. You know, it's it's hard to imagine that I was part of such a thing, but um, it, it was so different. You know, I feel very fortunate to have been raised with that intense listening culture. Cause I think it's, it set the groundwork for my ability to be a good listener at all from, from very early age. The concept of, of, of audiophile and, and the world of pro audio in the past have always seemed to, and this is my view of it yeah. was always may have, they may have borrowed things from one another, but they were at their core. They were, they were very separate from one another would you agree with that? Or have you, have, have you known the people in the pro audio world to have their toes in, in the audiophile world? Uh, I, it's kind of a both and. First of all, I think in the past, they were very much aligned. I, you know, if you look at the advertising from the 1950s, the record companies are telling you this is a hi-fi record to be mm. played on your hi-fi stereo system. You know, I mean, that they were very, very much relying on people's interest in excellent sound as part of their marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. So if you look at those early records from, you know, especially early stereo LPs, they're bragging about the sound, high fidelity sound, best sound possible, great stereo sound, bring the band to your living room, yada, yada, yada. And that was all directly identical to the messages you were getting from the hi-fi world, whether they were actually selling good equipment or not, they were still marketing great sound. Mm -hmm. Some, somewhere along the road, much later, those two camps got divorced. Going back, there's no question that audio engineers in the past were trying to deliver amazing sound to the best stereos possible. And Mm -hmm. and I think that that was an assumption that led to the modern mastering room. And when when I think about what's going on today, if you fast forward to 2015, these two camps are very much at odds with each other. And I think that my, my short, brief history of the listening culture versus the recording culture is that they were once very aligned and straight up into the point in the 90s when convenience began to trump sound. Now, in the past, we always had convenience. You had stereos in your, or, you know, at least radios in your car. You had cassettes and eight tracks in your car. The cassette was a huge liberator for full albums and choosing what you listen to in your car. We had transistor radios in the 70s. We had, you know, at the height of hi-fi, there were all these convenience things, but you didn't replace what you had in your home. At some point, I don't know when, the boom box 
especially the CD boombox, there was this message that this was all you needed. This is it. You just buy this one thing, stick it on your wall, and that's all you need. I think college dorm rooms in the 70s and 80s were filled with excellent equipment. If you're wealthy enough to go to college, somebody in there was wealthy enough to have a great stereo, and everyone would get around the bong and listen to these amazing sounding systems. And then, you know, by the 90s, my friends had boomboxes on their desk. No one brought a big fancy stereo to their college dorm room. So somewhere in there in the 90s, and of course that coincides with the arrival of digital, it coincides with toward the end of the decade with the arrival of the MP3, with Napster, with the theft, with the devaluing of recorded music, with the devaluing of sound, the emergence of the personal computer. You know, all these, everything changed in the listening culture. Meanwhile, the recording culture is sitting there evolving and changing in its own way. And by the late 2000s, there was this cynicism amongst many recording people that like, well, fuck, who cares what our recordings sound like? Everyone's just listening to MP3s on crappy playback systems. And that cynicism is really, I absorbed a lot of that cynicism from people around me and it really bummed me out. You know, you'd work for so hard to get your records to sound as good as you possibly could. And, you know, the band around you is like, you know, we don't want to spend all this money sitting here while you perfect it because they're just going to play it through their phone or something. Um, and, you know, I started to hear this cynicism creep in amongst the artists. And I thought, this is a huge change. If there's one person that should care the most, it should be the artist, you know. Um, it wasn't everybody, of course, but they, they, these younger people grew up in a listening culture that wasn't valuing high fidelity, you know, so much. Convenience was the name of the game. And then, of course... Along with all that, you saw the home recording studio emerge, and you're getting a lot of messages that you don't need professional studios. You don't, you know, get the sound you want for four hundred dollars. You can have every gadget in the world and plug in format, and you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of. I think the marketing is a big part of what's changed the recording culture and the and the listening culture as well. A lot of false promises. Just to hone in on a specific thing, I mean, don't you think with let's let's take the world of professional cooking. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of high-end equipment in restaurants, professional professional uh, high-end places. Yeah. But then we also have William Sonoma and people can go in and they can buy smaller, lighter, less expensive versions of what is in a big kitchen, whether, you know, whether yeah. that's a smaller dinkier espresso machine or uh, the little flame thing to make creme brulee, or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't you think that the recording world is essentially doing that, or has been doing that for years? It's just been like, oh, you know, the big studio is essentially like the big kitchen, and the and the home studio is like your, your kitchen at home. The, the analogy holds up, but I don't think a professional chef would work in my kitchen. Okay. A professional chef is not going to do their thing in my kitchen. Could they do their thing in my kitchen? Sure. Would it be a pain in the ass? Yeah, because my burners don't regulate right. And my pans don't sear the way that their particular pan does. Mm. And, they don't, and I don't have 55 particular tools that they probably need to do creme brulee just so. And I probably don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the, new, the craft is in the details, and the details are addressed through having the tools and the space and the abilities to manipulate things within that context. And, and I think that, but I think it's interesting that because when you look at really wealthy people's homes, 
people with all the money in the world, right? Mm -hmm. They have, you know, eight burner professional stoves. They have amazing slate tiled spa level showers that cost $20,000. They have personal mechanics to come tune their Porsche. And then they've got a Bose thing in their kitchen to listen to music on. (laughs) They're not spending money on stereo stuff. Yeah. It's true. I know people that will spend literally six figures on their lawn. And you go in their house and they've got a Sonos system. They're like, yeah, we can get everything we want, all of our phones. And, you know, like, where, why does the, why do the, these, like, even at the highest level where money is no object, the listening culture is such that they don't hold their standards for everything else the way that, you know, that they do for music. It's a different set of standards. So I don't know. It's interesting to think about, you know, these parallels and where they meet up and where they fall off, you know. In terms of the re- home recording studio, um, I think the big problem that I have there is the idea that you can buy a plug-in and therefore you have a Fairchild compressor. Um, that That's between the, the, you know, the user interfaces that they spend so much money on getting to look and behave and act like the real thing and the marketing, this is virtual reality. This is not, this is not, oh, this is the small version of that espresso machine for a fraction of the price. They're saying, no, this is, this is a Fairchild compressor. You've got it. You've got 20 instances of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need the real one. And now you've got all these professionals coming in with their endorsements saying, like, I don't use the real one anymore. I don't touch the real one. And, you know, the digital versus analog debate rages. But there's no question in my mind that analog is capable of doing things that digital isn't capable of doing. And no one talks about those differences very much. They talk about all the similarities, but they don't talk much about the differences. Let's talk about the concept of analog equipment and the the beauty and 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 the craft that that we all wax poetic about about that versus what what we have now available to us in terms of the plugins and. To me, it's almost like uh, when you talk about the very wealthy people who have these very fancy things in their lives, but they have these like Sono systems or Bose little systems. And yeah, um, I, it appears to me that we're in a culture, we're at a point in time where everything in the tech world is combined and needs to be, needs to multitask. There's people aren't really into buying, uh, a, things that do a singular thing well. Nobody buys a digital watch. Nobody buys, very few people buy. In fact, I saw this review, uh, this guy doing a review of the Sony high-res Walkman, and he was just like skewering it. He was like, you know, yes, it moderately sounds better, but oh my gosh, the design is so, you know, 10 years ago, it's pointless. And I can do all this other stuff with my phone. And, you know, we could debate about the the fidelity aspect, but he did bring up a good point. He's like, in this day and age, when people are used to smartphones and cars that have built-in navigation, the concept of buying one thing that only does one thing seems to appeal really to a niche audience. Yeah, I guess so. I think that niche audience is people who want the best results. You know, look at look at photographers. They buy prime lenses, which means it's only at one focal length because as soon as you get into a zoom, the image quality goes down. Right. You know, you look at, you know, people 
who own studios are going to buy a closet full of microphones on a microphone modeler because each one of those is going to do their thing that much better. Yep. Um, you look at, you know, um, I don't know. It's interesting. Anyone who works in a field where technology and creativity come together, I think almost universally when I'm sure that drafts people have individual pencils <laughs> that are better than their multi-pencils. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sure that that exists. Or rulers that, you know, work really well for drawing that kind of line. I'm sure this stuff exists. And you just go down the line of these technical, you know, where technology meets creativity. And I think that the best tools tend to do one thing. And, and your, your analogy of the kitchen holds up, right? You know, this knife is perfect for everything in the kitchen. Well, I'm pretty sure chefs have multiple knives for multiple types of cuts, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that for... For audio, I think the the promise of the multifunctional device has degraded the ability for any one of those things to be all that good, and I think that that's just a fact. You know, I don't I don't know that that's super debatable, and I think when you have a device that's dedicated to doing one thing really well, you also get the ex the experience of deep use of that thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it, spending a lot of time with one device reveals its multiple applications and its multiple, you know, abilities. The more time I, this is why I put together this API console. I'm like, I'm so sick and tired of racks full of choices. I just want a really good channel strip and I want a lot of them. And I'm just going to pick one. And I picked API legacy series because that's where my vibe was. I was just like, that's the sound I love. When I work on those consoles, I feel at home. You know, I'm like, ah. Porsche. I want to drive that. <laughs> so, right. So I got that. And, and I'll tell you, the more time I spend with those things, the more interesting different sounds I get out of them. I don't feel hemmed in at all by having less choices. And, uh, you know, I gave a talk a while ago in which I got into the basic uh, psychological concept that multiple choices make us less satisfied when we make one. This is this is so true. Go to the best restaurants. They have like three things you can choose from. Go to the best clothing boutique and they have like two shirts. You know, you can have the gray one or the grayer one, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, people are deeply satisfied by these things. And when you go, look at the worse the restaurant, the more choices on the menu, right? And, you know, the worse the store, the more options there are, right? So you go to Target and there's 5 million things. You go to H&M, there's 10 million shirts. And, you're choosing from all these things and, and it causes human beings to psychologically be less happy. So, so my, my feeling and, and, and to not to get to know or value these one, this one thing, you know, we really live in a consumer culture. And when I see people's plugins menus and they've got literally 70 EQs, you know, I'm sitting here going, well, which one of those do you really value? Which one do you really know? Which one really sings to you? I just think when you buy hardware, you're just not up against those choices unless you're extremely wealthy and you're buying 70 different EQs. Well, with that that concept in mind, um, I think it takes, you know, people talk about Pro Tools and, and DAWs and, oh, my God, you know, if we only had limitations, I feel that it's up to the individual to impose their own limitations and say, you know what? On this track, let's just let's limit our, our workflow to 16 or 24 tracks or let's empty out the plugin folder and really only stick with what we use. So not only will the program load faster, 
but we don't have to scroll down, you know, a ginormous list of, you know, uh, a font that is, in, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, six-year-old children can see, but g- yeah, gu- yeah. guys and gals in their forties are, you know, like, whoa, let me blow the screen up. <laughs> I, I, I had this conversation with Joel Hamilton one time and I, you know, I just said, Joel, there's a big difference between between real limitations and imposed limitations. Somebody has to choose to put that limitation in place. And that person has to get all the other people to agree to that limitation. And then you have to enforce it when the temptation to break it goes. And it, to me, the, that, that the hierarchy of enforcing those chosen limitations is very different from the democracy of all being in the same situation. So mm-hmm. if I'm producing a session and I say, you're not going above eight tracks, you don't need it. And someone gets an idea and it would push us to nine tracks. And I have to be the guy who says no. Whereas if we only had eight tracks and that's just the reality, then we would all collectively be solving that problem together. And, and it really yeah. changes. It becomes a power dynamic to impose those limitations the other thing that I ended up saying is that you're not going to stick to them. I mean, I paid a lot of money for that console. I'm not going to go out and buy another one. It, it, that's it. And that's what I have, and that's what I'm going to work with. But with the, with the digital imposed limitations in digital, I could change my mind in a month, and it might work for a project. But then I'm not spending years with the same equipment. And I'm just somebody who's really loves to spend years getting to know something and, and, and you have little breakthroughs with equipment that you spend years with, you know, and I think it's an outgrowth of, you know, how I grew up and what I, you know, having I'm the kind of guy who could only ever own one guitar. People never understood that. Like I didn't even like having two guitars in the same room. Like I'm going to have one sound and that's it. And I'm going to have to get everything out of that one guitar. So it's probably very individual to me, but I will say that a lot of people admire what I do and they see the freedom in it. And they are, some people have emulated that and decided to like back off on their digital systems and invest in a limited amount of, you know, the same stuff. And, and I, you know, I would also lastly just say that sonically, I think things really hang better together when you're using the same signal path. You know, they just, for me, it's like they all have that little subtle similarity to them. When I put up the faders, it just sits, you know, mm-hmm. and I used to struggle, you know, I, I worked in studios that had, and I'm not exaggerating, like, like 20 different kinds of preamps, you know, 17 different types of compressors. And I'd put up these amazing chains and I'd get this incredible kick drum sound. I got Johnny Cash's DBX 160 getting hit by this Neve 1073 that's been modded and it was amazing. And then the snare drum's got a chandler on it and I'd not, you know, and then I put it through the whatever EQ and, you know, each sound was incredible. I put the faders up and it's like subtly somehow this stuff wasn't hanging. And I especially feel this with reverbs too, that people will use multiple reverbs. And I think the human brain gets confused when you're listening to multiple spaces at once. You can't be in two rooms at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) so i I made a rule that i will only ever use one reverb on my mixes and it's amazing how many people say what did you do you know like it's so clear it's so open and they laugh i'm like well i took off you know 70 instances of plugins that you had up there and i took off your four reverbs and replaced it with the one i know is good and that's it and i'm like fuck (laughs) 
Why didn't I just do that? Let me ask you, uh, are you by any chance a fan of the, the idea of minimalism in life and in work? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sites about that. I, I'm a big fan of um, lifeedited.com is a, yeah, is a favorite I'm of mine. Yeah, I'm definitely a minimalist. There's no question about it. You know, if I can make a record with one track, I will. But I'm a minimalist for a reason. It's not, it's not merely preference because I, I, I don't like things to feel empty and spare and cold. That's not the point. You know, I think a lot of minimalism is like we have an all white home or something like that. And right, that's, not, right. that's not quite where I'm at. Like it's not Steve Jobs style minimalism. What I'm interested in is I'm interested in space and a sense of space and a sense of envelopment. And for me, minimalism can often achieve that. And I'm also very interested in decisiveness in art making and, and in life and food and everything. I don't like sandwiches because you've got like six different kinds of food all at once. I'd rather just taste each thing on its own and experience that. <laughs> and the ambience around a carrot is, can be very fascinating to me. And I like the salads you know, must really throw you for a loop. They, they got to be just a couple of things. You know, I'm famous for like the three ingredient salad with lemon and salt, you know, I, I, but I, I am a minimalist in that sense. And, and I, I had a really interesting eye opening experience once uh, working with the cinematic orchestra. I've done a lot of work with them and Jason, who's the leader of that band and I became quite close and we were working and working and working. And, you know, I mean, just groping around for some ideas early on in this project and, he went to art school, visual art school, and he said, you know, my professor one day came up to my page and he had written all these lines, he had drawn all these lines that were kind of scribbly and scratchy. And his professor came up and said, okay, but which one is it? And Jason told us this on the session and it just snapped everyone into decisiveness. Like, okay, we can all make a million different little lines here, but what's what's the one line that's going to work, that's going to do the thing? And I think that that has that always stuck with me as sort of a clarification of where I was headed in my thinking about making things. So it's interesting in this day of 96 tracks and, you know, a million different choices and all these reverbs, I my productions are very lean. They're very stripped back, but I never am told there's not enough going on. I'm usually whoa, there's so much space there. There's so much, you can really get inside of this. And I think that's because things have been left out, you know? Hmm. And, you know, as I like to say, you, you make one mark on a big white canvas, that thing leaps. You make a million marks on it. You, you, which one is it? <laughs> what, what, what are you saying? <laughs> what am I looking at? What am I supposed to focus yeah. on here? Yeah. Um, it's about finding clarity. I want to, I'm going to just transition a little bit to, uh, the topic of sexualization of audio equipment, uh, because yeah. I know that you're, you're a big, uh, advocate of not having that. And for the audience, basically, you know, what we're, you know, it's pretty clear cut. I think what we're talking about, we're talking about overtly sexual ads that objectify women in, in ads, primarily, rarely, rarely men. I've never seen one. Although Matt, I did make, a. a fake ad featuring myself with the new microphone, the cock. And it was, I'm playing, you know, in three sizes for every need in the studio. And, you know, I played with this whole idea of the cock and I put myself on it and I didn't throw it out there, but 
Um, but maybe I will one day, but it's just the absurdity when you turn it around to make it a man's thing. It's right. just, it doesn't work. You get to see exactly who these ads are for. It's, we had all these funny lines for the cock, you know, it was like, like, um, when I need to, <laughs> I tell clients, I'm going to hang my cock <laughs> all these things, you know, like on your drums and get the big ballsy sound and, you know, all this stuff like, it's just absurd. We would never do that because, you know, this is a market of straight, supposedly straight men who are heterosexual, you know, obsessed. And I, my problem is not just the sexualization, but also the sort of masculization of everything. It's like, we use our tools, our weapons, or this or that. And, and, and for me, Matt, really what the, there's multiple problems there, but for me, it's a marketing problem. This happens in marketing and advertising. It also, which then informs our culture. And remember, prior to what year, 1995, six, seven, eight, there was not mass marketing campaigns for professional audio equipment. You know, back when people were, I mean, there were, but they were, they were, you'd sent those ads to BBC, who was going to buy 55 Studer half inches. And you sent those ads to recording studios, of which there were probably a few hundred in any given region. Mm -hmm. When you started to market to individuals on a mass way, you suddenly had the advertising in professional um, trade magazines going completely towards individuals and therefore you're not selling equipment to a business that needs reliable good sounding equipment you're selling to individuals who are trying to get their individual sound to happen and very quickly that marketing starts to contribute to the culture of our of the recording industry and in that marketing we see people learning and absorbing messages over and over again, and then that gets spit back out of their mouths and how they think, and it shapes consciousness, right? I mean, this is a big modern problem that was predicted by, you know, French theorists in the 1950s. They're like, we're going to be so screwed because the advertising is going to take over and our consciousness is going to be shaped by that, you know? And th this is happening in our world. We are so – look at – Go on Facebook for two seconds and you're bombarded with advertising messages, you know, and you can barely tell the difference between advertising and content or whatever it is these days. So we live in a sea of marketing messages. And in the professional recording world, my beef is that the marketing messages, they rely on easy stereotypes and they rely on often on the sexualization of the equipment, often on the heterosexualization of equipment, and often on sort of this violence weaponry kind of stuff that really drives me nuts. And I think that it reflects, you know, it feels much more like I'm reading a monster truck <laughs> supply ad than I am what I consider to be one of the world's most important art forms, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, it just doesn't feel right to me on some deep level and I try to ignore it quite a bit, but I've become more vocal through the publication Pink Noise about these types of things because I also am very disappointed that our industry is still at 5% female. It just seems completely wrong to me that we're still there. So I've started to address these things. Um, and, and the second half of it is that I just think it's stupid. I think it's totally anti-intellectual. I think it dumbs down conversations. I think it keeps people thinking in broad strokes and, and unintelligently about what it is that we do that I think the more I do, it requires more nuance, more vulnerability, more openness, and, you know, greater um, empathy 
Um, and instead, what I'm seeing is this sort of machismo, you know, that, that keeps rearing its head over and over and over again, you know. Which, and then, of course, if you're at, say, NAM, then, you know, there, there's always, I hear people talk about the concept of the booth babe. It's not a concept. They're real people. Well, we're I, right. I mean, <laughs> just that. I've been, I've been to parties with, with, and served drinks by French maids in, in garter belts and stockings and heels at pro audio conferences, you know, and, you know, I'm sitting here going like, well, how is, how am I, you know, how is my 20 year old female intern going to deal with this? You know, like this is not a world for her. It feels like you're going to a gentleman's club. Well, what is that? It's just, it, to me that, you know, and for me personally, that it just turns my stomach, you know, that kind of stuff is just something that I just don't want to be a part of. And I can hardly go to any of these trade shows anymore. I just find them offensive, you know, and there are a lot of wonderful people at them. And I, meet them afterwards but i I can't even go well let me let me let me play devil's advocate now for but let me preface this by saying i completely agree with you and (laughs) yeah and and i'm not don't take my devil's advocate position as you know saying that you you think this no i do not think this but what would you say to those in the pro audio world who go oh man that's just political correct bullshit you know, and that's just, you know, we should be able to do whatever we want. So, well, well they can do whatever they want. We have the First Amendment. It's not going away. Mm-hmm. And and I can also walk down the street with a, you know, Kill Dykes T-shirt if I want to. No one can stop me. It doesn't make it a good thing. So I, when people talk about freedoms in this country, I, I just kind of back out of the conversation there and just say, okay, yeah, we all have the freedom to say whatever we want. Now, can we talk about what's good for each other? Can we talk about being kind? Can we talk about being helpful? Can we talk about encouraging diversity? Can we talk about what we're going to do with those freedoms and not whether we have them or not? Mm-hmm. You know, you have your freedom in this country. And when that gets taken away, I'll be the first person to get out there and kick ass to get it back because I'm not going to live in a fascist regime. That's not the point. And people who use that strategy to argue against someone like myself who says, hey, we can do a little better than French maids and balls or whatever it is, (laughs) you know, let's be a little more intelligent about things. You know, that that strategy, you hear a number of classic backlash positions that through my, you know, training in feminism, uh, you, you learn to decode and understand the classic is. You know, political correctness is limiting freedoms. Um, lighten up, get a sense of humor, as if somebody who thinks the Confederate flag is offensive somehow, therefore, doesn't have a sense of humor, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous, right? Or that that if you had a sense of humor, you would therefore be a racist pig. It just doesn't add up. The, 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 and there, and the, the the defenses against somebody saying, "Hey, let's 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 back off a little bit from this stuff." They're, they're, they're as old as uh, conservatism, you know, and they're predictable and they're easily taken apart, uh, those criticisms. It's very rare that I hear an argument for what I consider to be exclusionary practices that makes any sense. I, I rarely do, you know. Uh, your First Amendment rights aren't being taken away when I ask you to be more inclusive of women. And my first, your First Amendment rights aren't taken away when I ask you to put that fucking flag back in the trash can you got it from. It, they're not 
your First Amendment rights are there. You still have the right to do it. I'm asking you not to, to be a better human being to other human beings. And so I think there's higher standards um, that come into play here that we're talking about. And for me, one of the agendas I have with Pink Noise Magazine, along with Catherine, my co-editor, Catherine Vericoli, is to create a more inclusive professional environment. And if anybody has a problem with that agenda, I'd like to hear what it is. Now, we can argue about what, what's, what's keeping it from being inclusive, and I'm open to those discussions, and I've had them with many people, of course. But I think the agenda is a good one. And for us, we have definitely targeted marketing messages that rely on stereotype, stereotypical heterosexual tropes and stereotypical tropes of sort of violence and, um, you know, men with powerful tools who are going to destroy things, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm like the kick drum that's going to blow my head apart is coming through a TT cable. I just not seeing the machine gun here, you know? <laughs> so I just, you know, so I appreciate the devil's advocate opportunity, honestly. And, um, I just, I feel I, I personally have yet to be presented with a great counter argument for why we should have French maids and, uh, you know, Talk about, say, show me your racks. I just, I have yet to hear the convincing argument. I don't mm -hmm. see what's won. What do you do in the case where it's women, women who choose to participate in that? People who have the, the can be a decision maker in that, in that marketing ad. Yeah, I know it, it came up, right? And I, I don't know. I, I think, I don't think men or women are particularly... I don't think women are any more or less responsible than men for carrying messages into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're all human beings and we all carry messages into the world. And when we do, we're responsible for the consequences of those messages or at least being aware of them. So for me, it's, I know plenty of incredibly evolved transformative men. And I know a lot of conservative, strange you know, sexist women. So I just, I don't, I'm not sure I can say that there's a different response, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, if they're talking about their own body, you know, I guess it is a little different, but I think it still sends the same message essentially. Um, and in some ways I worry that women who publicly, especially women in positions of power because they're somewhat famous or renowned in our industry. I think when those women play those games, I worry that it sends the message that in order to become successful, in this field, you have to start to play that game, you know, which that, that's my concern, which, yeah, I could see that being a concern, especially with the low percentage of women's involvement in the pro audio world. Yeah. It's like, here's the three women in pro audio and they make crack jokes. <laughs> like, oh, great. <laughs> that, you know, okay. I just, you know, so that's where I'm coming from on that one. To, and to transition, you mentioned pink noise. Tell, talk to me about pink noise and what you and Catherine are, are up to. Yeah, I mean, our mission statement is simply to diversify the voices speaking within the pro audio world um, and to also create an intellectual tradition around recording. When I talk about the creating an intellectual tradition around recording, I think what I'm missing uh, in my own career is an intelligent, almost academic approach to some of the concepts in and around recording. And I crave that. And when I look around at my friends and uh, colleagues in other fields, I'm so jealous of architects who have multiple journals of essays that have been around for a hundred years, 
filled with brilliant ideas and schools of thought and, I, and, 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 a, and a place in which to kind of absorb different angles. And it's like, you know, and I look at photography has that tradition and filmmaking clearly has that tradition and a whole world of criticism around it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're in, and they're taught well in universities and they're studied and they're, they're, they're embraced that way. They're, and, you know, and I don't want what we're doing with Pink Noise to be this big highbrow thing, but I do want to kind of arc up over the common denominator of conversations that I hear happening and create a tradition of, of more thoughtful conversation and dialogue around what we do because I do believe it's a real art form um you know and I, I feel like you know what do we have we have like Brian Eno interviews like it's like, well I mean wouldn't you, you know, everyone loves Brian Eno what's what Brian Eno really doing Brian Eno's just saying really intelligent things about making records and we're hungry for he's like making bumper stickers every time he opens his mouth because he went to art school and he knows how to talk about art making in a sophisticated manner you know and that's what Brian Eno's doing. He's just he's just giving you his art school training, but about recording. Well, don't, and, don't you feel that AES and the the white papers that are issued within AES are kind of our version of what, say, the architects are doing? Well, okay, great great point, Matt. I think AES is a technical journal okay. largely. Okay, so I'm we're not talking about gear and 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 the electrical side or any of the technology at Pink Noise. We're talking about the creative side. And we're talking about the more philosophical side of what we do. Okay. So at Pink Noise, we that's a very that's right in our mission statement is we don't talk about gear. You know, I think there's an incredible intellectual um, rigor to AES uh, and what they've been doing for the past what hundred and some years, um, but it's very much technical. Okay. So they're, you know, in my mind, they're talking about you know the quality of cement and the specifications of steel. Whereas I want the architects talking about the sense of space and what they're trying to accomplish in their designs for people who inhabit them, you know. So there's a difference in those two, those two types of things. Well, it's rare that I see an AES paper that talks about the imagination, you know. Well, I mean, do you feel that we in the pro audio world use gear to express ourselves? Well, I, I personally think we we talk about gear because we are not willing to be. We're not able to be open and vulnerable enough to discuss the creative life that we lead, you know. Mm. And I also think that I have a real problem with the idea of engineer, producer, artist, songwriter, singer, like all these different titles that sort of permit you to discuss or not discuss certain aspects of what we do. But I, 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 I there's not an engineer I've ever met who doesn't have deep insight into the creative process. They're sitting there throughout how many records has an engineer sat through and made and been a part of and watched infinite numbers of, you know, creative moments pass by them. And then they're like, yeah, I replaced the op amp and it got a little brighter. I'm like, really? That's what we're going to talk about? You just watch some of the best artists of the world for the past decade. Let's talk about what they go through and what they do. And those are those conversations are just so infinitely more interesting and important and i think they get better results than talking about the op amp you know do, so. you, do you think making the gear disappear into the background is i mean is it just the mindset of the engineer that helps get the gear to disappear or the gear to become the focal point or 
Yeah, to a degree. I think I think it has to do with everybody. I mean, you can also have a guitar player who's obsessed with, you know, gear and they can make it the focal point, you know. Mm. You know, it doesn't anybody can do it. But it's a it's a but you know, we live in an incredibly materialist culture and we live in an incredibly we li- we live in a moment where what you own is 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 becoming the great identifier, you know, and I think that that's something that's that's br- in our broader culture that, that we're trying to resist with Pink Noise a little bit too, which is obsession with technology. You know, I think that we need to back away from that and talk to each other about our ideas, and our creativity doesn't necessarily get expressed or understood better when we talk about the tools too much, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would say that many, many people in the world will obsess over their tools in order to avoid having to confront themselves creatively. And we know this, like from the writer who has to clean their office from top to bottom and reboot their computer and clean their keyboard with a Q-tip, and then they can write a word <laughs> to the studio engineer who's going to recap his you know, entire console before he picks up his guitar and writes another song. To It goes on and on, right? The painter who's, you know, oh, I've got to, you know, I'm going to go out and buy this new brush before I do my ne- next painting. And, you know, we, we, it's just a human tendency. I mean, how many people have to clean their house before they can move on to the next thing in their life, you know? We put these sort of things um, in front of us that we have to get through before we can come to the really vulnerable place of like, okay, say something, okay, do something, imagine something, create something. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the gear obsession um, is in many ways almost like an industry-wide um, conversation that's avoiding what's really underneath it all. And when I go to some, like an AES convention, I just think to myself like, what if everybody was talking about their dreams instead of the microphone diaphragm? It would just be so much more interesting. Here are all these people who spend all this time coming together to make beautiful things. You know, even if all you do is engineer, even if all you do is track and mix, you've got a vision in your head. You turn that knob in a certain direction and get that much reverb on the snare because you're trying to create something. You're trying to create a world there mm-hmm. for somebody. You're trying to create an image there. I want to know more about that, not less. And I feel like when that person's telling me that, you know, they recapped that EQ, I just, I don't care. Unless they're saying I recapped that EQ and suddenly the whole world opened up and I finally got my sound that I've been trying, then I'm sort of interested. Like, oh, okay, what cap did you use? Let's talk about that. <laughs> it's interesting to me. But in isolation, those gear conversations are boring, 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 boring to me. You know, it's like Michelangelo letting you into his studio and, hey, you want to check out my chisel? <laughs> like, no, I want to check out the Statue of David or whatever it is, you know. Right. So, uh, you know, and I, I say this with respect, you, you have, um, you're a very different thinker. I really have an appreciation for for your approach and, and the conversations that you start. I, I, you know, I see the debates on Facebook and <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I have time to get involved and sometimes I don't. But it's, uh, I mean, you definitely seem to be trying to move things in a more positive direction for art, for uh, our industry and in, in the world of recording. And, and I, you know, I think that's great what you're, what you're attempting to do. Do you feel that you meet up with a lot of resistance? I definitely meet up with resistance. Absolutely. I do. And I don't always know why. Um, I think 
one of the reasons is that I think a lot of the things that I'm interested in engaging um, often bring people out of their comfort zone or sort of impinge on what is probably a very private space for people. Uh I don't have these resistances when I'm in an intimate working relationship. And I think a lot of people have really intense, beautiful conversations with people they're working with intimately, you know. Um, so I, I, I feel like sometimes the resistance is just people trying to protect their private, intimate, creative lives. And I think that's totally fine and understandable, but where I meet a lot more resistance is when I say things like, we can be better at this. We can do better. We're not good enough as a community of professionals. There's room for growth and development, whether it's dropping the sexualization and replacing it with a more intellectual and inclusive conversation, or it's trying to move beyond the sound of nineties digital technology 15 years later, or Mm. it's, you know, trying to come up with best practices for getting better sound or trying to demand that recordings actually are valued the way they should be that a lot of people don't like that. But I think, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with other people about what the defense against a lot of the things I talk about, where it comes from. And there is, you know, and I'm going to sound like a real snob for saying this, but I think a lot of people are very insecure about their work. I think a lot of people don't want to be told that their work might not hold up when really exposed to a proper playback system or that they've been using tools that don't give optimum results or that, you know, it, it, so on and so forth. I think, that, Or that they don't have the experience because the mentorship isn't there um, anymore and the real studio experience isn't there and the analog skill building isn't there. You know, I mean, it was Jim Anderson at, when he designed NYU's Clive Davis Production School said the first thing they're going to do is learn to record to analog tape through a console. And, you know, Jim, you're crazy. This is, you know, this is the 2000s. You can't do that. And it's like that if they know that, they're going to know how to do everything, you know. And I feel that the foundational understanding of things is often not there amongst people who are saying, I'm an engineer, I'm a producer. And I, I do, you know, and I, I know I'm sounding like somebody who's saying there's a lot of gross incompetence, but I wouldn't say that people are incompetent. I would just say that there's a, a kind of, lack of humility coupled to a defensiveness about how there's how their how people's work might sound and feel and they don't want to be told that it could be better you know uh-huh. that it might be hiding behind veils of sonic impurities and so on and so forth it's scary you know i mean how many times have i seen people bring something either to my mix studio or to a mastering studio and just like break down like oh my god it sounds like shit why didn't i know you know it's like just the monitoring chain alone can be so inferior in so many cases that people aren't even hearing the problems with their recordings, you know? So I think there's a, there's also a vast number of people who are younger than you and I are, who grew up with stolen MP3s that sounded like crap playing over crap things. And now they record on laptops or something and they're being told like there's a whole, whole higher echelon of craft here that you've not been exposed to and they, they don't want to hear it. You know, we sound like some old fuddy duddies, you know, talking about, <laughs> talking about the good old days. The good old days. When I was a kid, we made real records. We etched it into the vinyl by hand. You know, it's not like that, but I, 
I guess the resistance I meet, I do think sometimes comes from fear uh, that maybe I'm right about a couple of things. You know? well, and I, I know, again, I, I said that going into this, I'm going to sound like a big snob, but I, I sometimes wonder, you know, I really do. And, it, and I will say this as well. I've had my share of hard knocks over the years. Being, <laughs> I've had some mentors who've kicked my ass and like, your shit sounds horrible. Listen, here's what's wrong. And you oh my God, I thought I was okay at this, you know, and we need more of that. You know, that's how people, you know, I always say, I always say to people, you want a cheerleader or a coach? Like I'll take the coach every time, you know, I think there's a lot of cheerleading out there. We need more coaching, you know, we need more ass kicking. <laughs> like you're going to get your ass kicked today and you're going to, you're going to get better because of it. You know, I'm, know I'm, happens, I'm you know? certainly not going to say that I'm guilt-free here. I mean, I definitely have sped through some recordings in this fashion, but I think that there is a fast food mentality about a lot of stuff that gets done. It just gets done fast and cheap and it gets pushed out there and people just don't either can't afford to take the time and money to invest into the process. And as a result, you know, they, they just think, oh, it's it's fine. But when you hold it up to something else. Yeah, it doesn't hold up. Uh, you know, time and money are really interesting topics, too, because we live in an era of amateur record making. Rare is the professional who has the time and the money to spend a year of constant work to get a record right, you know. And sometimes that's what it takes from writing to mastering. That can be a lot of work. And we, we are flooded with not just a lot of people making records on an amateur level, um, meaning not their full-time job, not their full-time thing. But we're also, as professionals, presented with a lot of opportunities to make our living by helping amateurs make records. And that's something that we've all done some of. Um, and for me, I... I have made a lot of really wonderful recordings with people who aren't professional musicians. And I feel good about those recordings. But for me, I had to step away from working on those records because I personally wanted to be working with people who were able to spend the time and the money to make records at the level that I wanted to make them at personally. Um, and that's partly why I started Butterscotch Records, the label that I run. It was an opportunity for me to say, okay, I'm going to make <laughs> these records each year and really plot the course out for the latter half of my career. You know, I turned 40 and kind of had this crisis where I was like, yikes, like, okay, first of all, I'm 40. Like, what does that mean? And my role is changing in the studio from one of like the guys to like the older guy often. And that was interesting to, to feel that shift. And then I thought to myself, well, I can't slow down time and age, but maybe there's something to be gained from becoming older and starting to go gray. Um, and, you know, what I realized was that I could take on more of a leadership role than I had in the past. Um, and so with the labels really allowed me to take on that role. And, you know, I don't hear a lot of people talk about what it means to get older with their careers. You know, you do in, you know, if you're a businessman, you just get moved up the ladder. And the next thing you know, you're an elder statesman of the company, right? And, you know, I think, you know, within freelance positions, there's no one to kind of help you move up any ladder. And so I almost had to create a little bit of a ladder that would allow me to get into a position where I had just enough more say in things that I could really start to shape the projects uh, that I wanted to work on. Well, uh, 
you, like Andrew Sheps, with his Tonequake label, are yeah. diving into a world that is economically challenged. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what, I, anytime somebody says, oh, I'm starting a label, I, 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 get, I start to shake a bit. I'm just like, whoa, boy, that's scary. How is yeah. it for you? It's Well, we're very new. We're less than two years old. And I've given, you know, anyone who starts a business is insane. And anyone who starts a business in an industry which is showing decreased profits, you know, is really insane. But for me, I don't know that I had much of a choice because I feel like I need to make these records. I have to make them. So I was able to start the label and begin making these records and get it going. And I have partnered with Red Eye Distribution, which has been enormously helpful in getting, you know, the records out into physical stores internationally. In terms of the economics of it, it's not a great choice. And if I'm brutally honest uh, with our listeners about that choice, the truth is that I live very cheaply. <laughs> I don't require a lot of money to exist. I We bought this house in a very inexpensive house. Um, we don't have children. And we we live like artists. You know, we don't spend a ton of money and we don't require a ton of money. So we've scaled our lifestyle to be able to sustain our careers. And the label is um, starting to pick up. And I think it's going to take a good five years or more before we really start to to hit cruising altitude and sustain it. But we're building a really interesting catalog that I'm very proud of. And I'm working with artists on an interesting level now where we're looking, you know, five, ten years down the road of their career. What are you trying to accomplish? What do you want to get to? And building those careers up over time. So, you know, there's a sort of long-term strategy to the whole thing. Uh, but also, it is not my sole income, you know, that label. You know, I still am mixing and engineering outside projects, Um and mastering a lot more these days, which I'm finding really rewarding and, and quite cool. And I'm doing um, a bit of freelance writing for some pro audio companies and, you know, and sort of piecing it together like anybody. Mm-hmm. Make our, and there's Elska as well, and we've had some good successes there. So it's sort of a multifaceted career, you know, to try and, to try and keep me out of the day job, you know. So and, like many other people, you, you diversify to stay involved. Yeah, with the long-term goal of making the Butterscotch Records the thing that I'll be doing full-time at some point. That's the goal, yeah. And if I may ask, in a, in general terms, what is your financial arrangement or structure with the artists, and how does the recording part of that factor in? I don't know if I want to get into our business relationships because I consider that private. Okay. Um, but I will say that we are a profit share label. Okay. We have very fair deals. And I will say that I consider our artists to be very lucky to get the deals that they get. And um, and my lawyer considers me an idiot to give them those deals. So, of yeah, course. You know, not an idiot. But, you know, she it's a, it's a very uh, tried and true um, split of profits. And then in terms of who's investing in each record at the front, um, that depends. Some of these records come to me almost finished. Some just need mastering and artwork. Some are don't exist at all, and I'm building up the record from the beginning, and we're funding that more fully from the front end. So I am paying myself to produce and engineer 
and mix um, a lot of the work that's coming through the label. You know, it, 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 it's it's just thinking through our roster, they're all a little bit different. For example, Mike Jorgensen, who's the keyboard player, Wilco, he's on our label, and he gets all his tracks finished, and he kind of puts a rough mix together and says, you know, Al, do your thing, right? And so I get it up on the API and bang out mixes for him. And so, you know, it's it's a little different in each case. To conclude, I know we didn't want to talk about gear but uh, just in conclusion, because it's such a unique piece, I think, uh, and it was written about in Tape Op, and I've drooled over many a, a Facebook picture of it. What's the what's the concept between this? Is essentially it's a it's a homemade console using off the shelf parts, off the shelf channel strips from API. Yeah. What's the tell me what's the what's the mo behind it, and why didn't you just buy a pre done console? Yeah, okay. Lots of answers to that question. Um, the only API console, the only console in the world that I wanted was, you know, $175,000 okay. <laughs> off the shelf. So that's why I didn't buy, <laughs> I, I can barely afford one-tenth of that. So we, you know, I looked around, I got to the point in my career where I, I was using um, dangerous summing boxes and summing an, an analog. And I tried to work in the box and couldn't make it happen. And I was growing frustrated with the work I was doing, even with my dangerous gear, because I didn't have a lot of outboard EQs and compressors. So I was relying on plugins. And I really saw the writing on the wall that I was not going to be renting big studios with the consoles I wanted to use anymore if I wanted to sustain my career, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't work in the box anymore. Uh, the dangerous stuff really helped, but again, I didn't have channels, you know, I didn't have my EQs and my compressors there. So I looked at what it would cost to buy a bunch of outboard gear. And I'm like, I just, I'm at the point where I should just look at a console. It's a full on solution to all my problems. So, you know, you, you sit around and you think about these things and I, and I have had the privilege of working on the legacy series consoles. And I think Paul Wolf's designs when he was at API are amazing. I just think that those, his, that series is incredible. And I think the 1608 is also a great console, but it's not the sound I'm after. It's not the thing I wanted. And what you paid to get a 16 channel console was beyond me anyways. And so I, I kind of sat there scratching my head going, I don't know what to get. I looked at broadcast Neves, not the sound, too expensive. Da -da 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 -da. I was going, you know, it was maybe a Neotech, but no, it doesn't do the thing. I really struggled. And then finally somebody showed me a picture of Jack Daly's console. Jack's this great engineer, and he's Lenny Kravitz's bass player and this really interesting guy out in New Jersey. And he had this 24-channel legacy console. I'm like, a 24-channel legacy, does that exist? And I saw that it was made of their 7,600 channel strips vertically. The API 7,600 predates what they call the channel strip now. And I was like, oh, interesting. So I called API. And I'm like, is this a real thing? Like, do you do this? And I say, oh, yeah, you just change the faceplate. And then the whole thing is, you know, it's a console. You can have a one-channel legacy console if you want I said, really? Okay, let me let me see. So I went online and I bought a pair of the channel strips on eBay for next to nothing. And I said, let's plug them in and see. So Nicole, my assistant, <laughs> was there the day I plugged them in. And I was like, oh my God, it sounds like a legacy. I can't believe this. This is so cheap. This is amazing. Then I bought the center section on eBay, you know, and it was cheap. 
and I got the center section plugged in and I go, Oh my gosh, look at this. Like we have full solo in place and mute groups. And I was like, this is a console. I just need a bunch of these channels. So I started buying them up on eBay. Like they, and they come up on eBay all the time and they're really affordable. So it's like, buy now, buy now, buy now, buy now, buy now. And they just started coming from all over the country. You know, Guitar Center in Arizona has one. Send it on up, send it on up. And they just started showing up. And had a big rack of them. And I was like, this is it. This is the sound. This is the vibe. They've got the 225L compressor, which is like brilliant. Uh, and the 550 EQ is obviously brilliant, you know. And full, you know, busing and send groups. And the, the whole thing is there. It's a legacy, you know. Talk back, the, the whole thing. And so I needed um, I needed furniture for it, and I started to look around, and you know the pre-existing furniture was deeply unsatisfying to me. I needed to feel inspired by this thing I'm going to sit at for 12 hours a day for the rest of my career. It better be really really beautiful and and speak to me. And so I got in touch with a designer, Francois Chambard, um, who is a French man who's uh, located in Brooklyn, and his. Uh, group his a uh, company is called um project and he makes the andy hong from tape up hooked me up with francois because francois had done some work for andy before um and had designed the studios at the lodge and i think they're gone now but they're different some recording studio work and it's like mind-bogglingly beautiful i mean listeners should go to umproject.com right now and just look because it's just such a treat visually and the console's on a site too so Francois was really excited about the idea because we were both at similar places in our career where we needed to kind of move forward and do something different. And he's mm-hmm. like, a recording console, I've designed so many chairs and tables and, you know, household items would be really great to work on something like this. And he is just so talented. And so he came up with these different designs and they were on the cover of Tape Up, actually. If you go back a few years, there's a cover with these four consoles on it. And those are his original sketches of the different concepts uh, for the console. And then Francois built it, the furniture for it. And we, you know, it took a little bit of work <laughs> to get it right. And we put it all together and it's, there it is. So it's a, I have to say, like all told, I have a legacy series console for not that much money. It's amazing. I love it to this day. And what now, about the faders? What's that? What about the faders? Uh, I just use Alps faders. They're, you know, they're like 20 bucks and they're the real Alps faders that you get in a, API console and there's a those channels have fader outputs they have meter outputs they have all the back of those things nobody really realized this about the 7600 they just thought it was a rack unit it's got full console functionality and it's great I mean you're on a quarter inch audio connection for your faders you know most faders are on ribbon cables you know this thing is great it's like boom and the sound is incredible you know wow Full, full legacy sound and you know we've slowly been modifying it over the years and i'm talking with somebody about um i'm actually in a lot of dialogue with api themselves i also really wanted to work with a company that was still there you know which is so great apis you know they're up and running so you can call them and get advice and help and all that so we're talking about building a new power supply for it and god if we can invent an op amp that doesn't burn out so easily we'll find that we've been trying different op amps and toying with it and kind of Kind of, it's, you know, consoles are works in progress always, right? So this one's no exception. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the API. That's I, I very think other, cool. Yeah, I, I would advise anyone to do it. I think the channel scripts are still available. They're not as available as they were, and I don't know why. 
I might have hit a lucky moment because I literally started to do this just months before they released the channel strip. So even API had some leftover 7600s that they sold me and, you know, but they're out there still. It's such a smart idea, but API never seemed to market it well. All they needed was a picture of Jack Daly's console on their website. We would have all gotten it like that. But they didn't market the 7600 as a modular console. They did it as sort of a rack thing, but they were selling more of the 8200 series line mixers because that was the era of the analog summing, right? The analog summing box was such a big deal. Right. So people are getting like, you know, 96 channels of analog summing in a rack with the 8200s, which are eight returns per unit. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. But the beauty is I just buy those and I get eight more returns. I hop on eBay, get one, I have a hundred bucks a return on my console and I just plug in a ribbon cable and I'm done, you know? So it's, it's really, a, it's a great system for me. And right now I've got 12 channels and the other side of this console, which currently holds the patch base, that all comes out and holds another 12 channels. So it's a 24 channel console one day. And I've got, when all these artsy records I make blow up and turn me into a millionaire, I'll buy the other channels. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, I, I think we should wrap up. We're kind of out of time and, and I still have, I'll have some editing to do, of course, to get it out. But uh, sure. thank you so much, Alan. It's, it's good to talk to you. I, we've had numerous chats on Facebook and yeah. uh, this yeah. beats the shit out of that, I'll tell you. Yeah, it'd be nice to be in touch more. Well, thank you again and uh, good to talk to you. All right, well, thanks so much. Take care. Cheers, bye. Super cool. What a treat to have Alan on. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks for spending the time that you did have to listen to us today. Make sure you like us on Facebook and uh, tell all your friends about the show. I guess that's about it, huh? All right. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.